And I am here today with Nate Story from Bright Agrotech. And I've been, you know, jumping around YouTube and watching videos. And I pretty much watched all of Nate's videos just because, I mean, he's not just a practitioner. You're actually a Ph.D. in this field. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, he's not just like a, a hobbyist like myself. You're actually, you know pretty dang smart, a genius in this area, I guess you'd say. But, you know, I just wanted to ask him some questions about aquaponics, and I'm really excited um, today about not only talking about how to make aquaponics successful, but, you know, in the commercial side of things, because um, he's not only the the creator and the, invent, <laughs> the inventor of the, the zip grow towers and growing vertically, but, but uh, he's actually using the vertical towers in an commercial aquaponics farm. So I'm really excited to talk about that. But can you tell me first, uh, you know, how did you get started in aquaponics? Well, um, I, I got started when I was actually working on my master's degree at the University of Wyoming. I'd always kind of been interested in fish farming, and of course I've always been interested in gardening. So um, when I came across the, the topic, um, of aquaponics, I thought it was really interesting. And initially I was just interested in it from a phytoremediation standpoint. So basically cleaning up effluent from fish farms because they're, they're, they're pretty toxic um, in a lot of places. So trying to figure out how to clean up that waste. And um, over time, the research just kind of evolved. And, and uh, you know, I started playing with towers during my master's and was just kind of unhappy with them. So I decided that that was going to be my research for my PhD. So I just kind of kept plugging away and um, eventually found myself running an aquaponic farm. <laughs> Wow, wow. So what was the biggest mistake that you've made, um, you know, since the beginning when you first started doing aquaponics? Oh, man, there's so many mistakes to choose from. It's going to be hard to <laughs> hard to narrow it down to a single one. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's so many things um, that I did wrong right off the bat, you know. Um, I was getting started back in the early 2000s when there still just wasn't a whole lot of information out there. Um, on aquaponics, so back before there was kind of this explosion in interest, and um, right. you know I, I started with uh, you know like a galvanized steel tank, which um, you know I make sure everyone knows now zinc is really toxic to fish, so you know galvanized steel. It, I put my fish in, they all died right off the bat. <laughs> I, <laughs> I killed many a poor fish. Um, you know uh, everything from putting in parts that had you know like thin layers of machine oil, um, you know, using too small a tanks. I tried to go solar right off the bat, which is a noble aspiration, but I'll tell you, it's it's a bit tricky. So uh, <laughs> beyond that, you know, like the other big mistake was probably just trying to start off with tap water. And, uh, you know, where we're at, the tap water has a lot of carbonates in it. So I ended up kind of accumulating some carbonates in my water and um, just had a really hard time bringing my pH down over time. So there was there was a lot of mistakes that were made, but um, <laughs> I learned from them, and hopefully now uh, folks can pay attention to 
learn from my mistakes and, and not make the same ones. Right. So, so in, in that area, we'll, what do you do now if, if you know, because uh, looking at your videos, you guys have to truck in your water right into an IBC. Yeah. Um, so now that we're running a mature system, um, what we've done is uh, we're not actually not on city water. Like you said, uh, we actually uh, bring our water in from another location. And uh, that works because we just use so little. Um, we just don't use a whole lot of water in our system. And now right. um, that our system is large and it's mature, we're actually using straight tap water. Um, and that's just because we got ahead of the um, we got ahead of the carbonates with our nitrification. Basically, we're uh, we've got enough nitrification going on, and the water acidifies fast enough that um, it burns them all up. So we don't have a problem still running at a low pH, even though uh, we are using tap water now. Wow, yeah, that makes sense. So. Someone you know just starting out has a system they're building in their back their backyard. What would you recommend for them? You know that's a really hard one. You know some folks in in uh, some locations they can use um, their tap water because it's not very hard. Um, but in a lot of other locations, I I encourage people to look into RO filters, and these are reverse osmosis filters, and they're being made real ex inexpensively now. You can get them online usually for a couple hundred bucks, and a lot, a lot of folks kind of look at that right off the bat and say, oh, well, I don't want to spend 200 bucks on the front end. Um, but when you consider all of the pain and suffering that they go through, <laughs> trying to deal with a really poor water quality over the, you right. know, the next several months, you know, I think that all of them would look back and say, oh, it was worth the investment right at the beginning. Right. What about if, if, if they didn't want to go spend the money on a filter, could they go and get like a – you know, like a five-gallon bottle of water from, uh, like, a water store or something like that? Sure, you bet. It's, um, you know, it's the same stuff. You can, you can go to Walmart and buy jugs of RO water or distilled water or any of that. I do recommend the RO over the distilled. Um, not that it's necessarily a problem in aquaponic systems, but um, distilled is almost too pure. <laughs> so, oh, wow, yeah. Um, yeah, stick with RO if you can find it. And it's for sale on most, you know, most uh, the Culligan man will have it and the, you know, uh, Walmart will have it. So you can find it just about anywhere. Right, right. And is it beneficial or non-beneficial to use something like rainwater in an aquaponic system? Oh, absolutely. Rainwater is some of the best water you can get. Um, yeah, the trick is just living in a place with enough rain. I'm sure uh, in Hawaii it's no problem, but here in, in Wyoming, you know, we, we don't get very much. We're high desert. So, right. um, you know, it's it's a little bit more difficult for folks like us. But absolutely, if, if that's an option, if you have um, rain barrels and you have a way to catch rain, uh, go for it. Right, right. So, you know, on, on the flip side of that, what is the most important lesson you've learned to make an aquaponic system successful? Um, you know, I think I would say that, you you know, the, the most important thing right off the bat is to have a good design. Um, so the, the importance of starting off with a high-quality design just cannot be overemphasized. You know, using something that's been proven as opposed to trying to innovate right off the bat. So many folks I know, um, they basically uh, decide that they're going to start doing aquaponic gardening or whatever, and they get going and they try to do something new and and interesting right off the bat, which is great. I mean, it's great that they're being involved. It's great that they're being, uh, you know, excited about what they're doing. But 
um, a lot of the time what it leads to is it, it leads to system failures because they haven't given themselves enough time to learn about the practice, about the system, about their fish and plants and all that stuff before they try start trying new stuff. Um, so that you know that's the that's one important thing, and then the other one, of course, is just starting with really high quality water, and starting from the very beginning with high quality water will absolutely change um, your learning curve. You know, it, it's going to make it so much easier um, down the road. So absolutely, you know, starting with an RO filter or using RO water right from the very get go is going to make your life so much more simple. Yeah, that makes sense. So. You know, let's start talking about the system like a, a you know, a, a good design system. What made you, you know, want to create and design these, uh, these Zipro towers? Well, um, I played with some common tower designs during my master's, and I played with them, and, and they didn't perform very well. They, like most tower systems um, these days, they weren't awesome performers. But when I got done and I crunched the numbers and I did the statistics on them, um, the production per square foot was still, even at, with poor production, was still amazing. Um, so I started thinking about that a bit more and thought, you know, if I could actually build towers that grew plants really well um, and I could double or triple this productivity per square foot, I, it would be revolutionary. You know, it's it's a volumetric approach to production as, a, as opposed to approaching production from a square footage kind of perspective. So um, as I got ready uh, for my PhD, I started thinking about that and about what I could do. I decided that, you know, basically I need to go through and redesign tower systems. So, you know, from from the beginning, tower systems, they've always just been stratifying, you know, stacking horizontal production techniques on top of each other. So instead of saying, okay, let's let's redesign this from, from scratch for vertical production, um, what's ended up happening is people are just stacking pots. So almost all the designs you see, they're stacked pot designs, which, um, you know, they, they work all right, um, but, you know, they don't have good production on all sides. There's always, you know, the backside is always shaded, especially, you know, even maybe more so where we're at than, than where you're at because the sun's always to the south of us. Um, you know, they're heavy, they're immobile, they're difficult to plant and harvest, they're ugly. And a lot of the time, you know, if they're media-less, then the changes in air temperature will kill your plant roots. And if they're full of media, they're just really heavy and hard to deal with. And, um, you know, a lot of them just require to be rotated. So I started thinking about all these issues, and I was trying to figure out a way uh, to resolve them all. So developing a tower system that um, instead of being you know, instead of having poor production on the back side of the tower, we'll, we'll just grow on one side of the tower and we'll, ref, we'll reflect all of the extra light. Um, so, you know, we can serve light better, uh, making it lightweight but still media-based, making it really easy to plant and harvest. Kind of all these things started rattling around in my head. And um, it took several months, and I looked at a lot of different materials and uh, played with a lot of different things and, and wasted a lot of time. But eventually... Um, I settled on the design for the Zipgrow towers. And, um, you know, once I started ironing out the issues with them and sort of figuring out some of the quirks, um, you know, it really became rewarding. And I realized that I'd finally kind of struck on this um, increase in productivity that I was looking for. Right, right. And so basically 
you took like a media bed that is, you know, super heavy and you can't really move it around and you've made it go vertical. And so, you know, we're in like a media bed, we would use like, you know, hydrothin or, you know, right. some sort of stones or something. What what is the what is the material you use as the media in your in your Zipcro towers? So it's a polyester fiber. It's made from recycled water bottles, and it is really just kind of the inverse of the aggregate model. So using hydrogen or gravel or three quarter inch crushed granite or whatever your media choice is, you know, it, you're looking for something with really high um, specific surface area. That's you know a lot of square inches per cubic inch of material. Um, so, you know, when you look at a lot of those aggregates, uh, the specific surface area gets a lot better as, as you get smaller, smaller particle size. Um, but by going to a fiber, um, it's really interesting. We can really increase our percolation, and we can really improve a lot of the dynamics of the material and its use in the system um, while simultaneously really improving our specific surface area. So, yeah, it's, it's a great product. Uh, the fiber is the fiber is sweet. It's lightweight, doesn't hold a lot of water, and uh, the bacteria really like it. And, and in your videos, you, you're even using red worms to, to go into the media and and everything. Yeah, absolutely. We put red worms in there. We've got, um, you know, we've, we've got all sorts of interesting creatures in our system. But, yeah, the, the red worms are really helpful. You know, they as the roots kind of accumulate in the fiber, the red worms go through and break it down and help speed up all our nutrient cycles. So, um, right. yeah, it's compatible with red worms and, uh, and uh, all your normal soil bacteria and nitrifying bacteria. And so, and I mean, looking, looking at just the videos of, of the towers, you don't need a whole lot of water to be pouring down these things, right? It, it seems like you have like a small, you know, just trickle of water down. How, how does that work? So, you know, we, we basically irrigate them from the top, and the water just the water trickles down through that media very quickly. Um, and we usually irrigate at about uh, 7 to 10 gallons per hour on each tower. Um, but that's probably more than they need. We're just doing that because the towers are our only source of biofiltration and solids filtration in our system. So we just, you know, increase our um, irrigation rates to make sure that um, – you know, essentially we're processing all of our water um, on the hour. Right. And so like like these other, like kind of like the deep water, you know, setups and whatnot, they have to go through, you know, from the fish tanks, they got to go through these swirl filters and these other, you know, all these big filters. You're just going straight from uh, fish tanks into your towers? Yep, that's right. So our, all of our water drains from fish tanks to a sump tank and then it's circulated up to the tops of our towers. Wow. Seems a lot even better. It's more cost-efficient. You don't have to have all these other tanks, and you don't have to wait to dispose of the fish waste like a lot of these other ones have to. Yeah, that's right. Um, it basically, you know, it, it eliminates a lot of our needs for solids filtration equipment, so reduces kind of cost on the front end as far as getting set up. Now, for large operations, they don't recommend that everyone get rid of all their solids filtration stuff, but... Um, you know, we do it because we'd rather spend the money on, on you know, labor and other things than, than setting up large solids filtration uh, thing. Right, but we've right, also, right. you know, it also kind of allows the towers themselves to mature. So, you know, like over time, they become more and more fertile as, you know, more organic matter accumulates in them. And so it's kind of a nice thing for, for our gardening or for our farming as well. 
Now, well, you know, you know, I have like a, a small back porch, and so I don't have a big area to do it. And so, like, let's say I have like a 50-gallon fish tank. How many towers would you use for like a 50-gallon fish tank? Um, for a 50-gallon fish tank, um, I would probably recommend about three to four towers, three, three to four of our five-foot towers. And um, that's basically enough to easily handle up to five pounds of fish. So if you're stocking that at five pounds or one pound per 10 gallons, somewhere in that range, those towers would handle that quite easily and probably even over that um, quite a bit. Wow. Wow, that's great. So um, now let's switch over because you're running your commercial operation just fully off of, of towers. So what made you want to use your towers rather than, you know, RAF and NFT and all these other big media bets and stuff that other people are doing? Right. So, you know, the the problem um, with some of these other techniques, especially stuff like RAF, um, you know, RAF was really, it was a technique that was developed for the tropics. Um, because it's, and it's really the best way to do hydroponics in the tropics just because you've got a lot of water and it shifts and uh, there's temperature changes, um, but they're very slow compared to, say, NFT, which just cooks. Um, so, you know, the, the problem with raft, though, when you kind of take it and you put it in uh, places like ours, is that the cost of labor, it's, it's very labor-intensive. So the cost of labor is just um, tremendous. And it can't compete with traditional hydroponic producers. So, you know, part of the reasoning behind getting towers going was to figure out how we could compete with traditional hydro, even though we were running an aquaponic um, greenhouse. So, you know, I've done NFT before. Actually, I've done raft, NFT, and media bed production. Um, and all of them uh, have basically just kind of fallen short in a few areas. Um, and, and I really like the idea of towers because uh, where we're at, they, especially, they, use, uh, they use sunlight really efficiently. So we can set them up in ways that kind of manipulates how the light is entering the, the tower mass. And we can get uh, usually two to three times as much production per square foot out of towers than any horizontal stuff and considerably more than raft. So, um, you know, there was part of it from the very beginning was just that focus on productivity and cost control for us because, you know, as a commercial operation, you live and die by your margins. And anything that erodes those margins um, is, you know, it's something that needs to be looked at very closely. Um, so for us, you know, labor is a huge cost. So there's absolutely no way I could even go into business with Raft or NFT where I'm at um, using aquaponic production techniques. So to do aquaponics, really, I was left with towers. They were the only way for me to actually be profitable and make money um, in in my market. So part of it, you know, that first part was just the productivity. It was just an increase in productivity. The second part was, as uh, as part of my research, I also looked at live sales. So, you know, for a producer, about 60% of your cost is tied up in post-harvest labor and packaging. It's, it's, you know, it's plastic and labor. So we figured if we could actually take our production um, towers out of the greenhouse and send them to market whole and just have the consumer cut them at the market, we're eliminating around 60% of our total costs. So um, really the only technique on the market that you can do that with is our towers. So that was the second reason that we went with them. On the front end, it's because they're more productive. On the back end, it's because we can eliminate about 60% of our total cost by going to the live sales model. 
right? And, and you know, I, I could assume, like, if I walk into, like, a health food store and there is a tower of basil or lettuce, I'm going to want to buy that stuff, you know, even more than the stuff that was locally produced and, you know, cut right there because, there, I mean, there's something about, like, look, it's growing there and I cut it myself. And so it almost becomes a even more premium product because it's on display where it's grown. Absolutely. You know, when, you, when you're buying something in a clamshell or something that was purportedly cut that morning or whatever, um, you know, there's, there's always some question there as to how old it is, where it came from, how it was grown. But when you see something growing alive, um, it's very different, you know. Uh, you know it's alive right then. You cut it, you take it home, you know exactly how fresh it is. Um, but there's also kind of that cool experiential aspect. You know, you're actually cutting your own food. And that's something right. that most Americans have never done, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. So giving people that experience is kind of a cool thing, too. And you're absolutely right. It is viewed as a premium product. So even though we are reducing our costs of production, um, we still typically charge a little bit more at market for our product, and our con customers are all really happy to pay it um, for right. the freshness and the experience. So so do you work out something like, uh, you know, if you're working with uh, Whole Foods or, you know, whoever you're working with, that they, the people, you know, will clip their, you know, their vegetable, you know, their herbs or whatever, their lettuce, and then they go and they pay per ounce, and then you work out a deal where, you know, half the money goes to you and half the money goes to Whole Foods, or do, do you work out something like that? Right. So the way we usually do it is it it's like a consignment sale, basically. So they charge a markup for it. Um, on the product. Everything has its own little SKU. And when it goes up to the front, you know, people just pay on a weight basis. So if you want two ounces of basil, you can buy two ounces of basil. And if you want, you know, two ounces of lettuce, you can buy two ounces of lettuce. It's scalable to the customer's needs. And um, so they, they just basically go up, they buy it by the ounce or the pound, depending on what they're purchasing. And uh, it's like a, it's a standard industry 50% markup. So, you know, right. if we charge the store um, $2 for something, they'll turn around and retail it for $3. Right. Well, that's great. And, you know, I, I, I just just something that I was curious about. How do you keep it from, you know, like drooping or dying when it's no longer connected to the, the water while you're in the store? Well, you know, we, we built these special displays for them. So they basically go to the store and then they snap into this display that irrigates them. So, um there's actually a little irrigation system inside the store uh, that irrigates each individual tower and keeps everything alive. Wow. Genius. That's genius. <laughs> <laughs> so, it works nicely. Yeah. <laughs> so just, so, you know, one, one last question, which is, and it's kind of a huge question, but I, you know, on your website, you have a report, you know, about the 10 mistakes people make. And, and you bet. a big, a, a big part of the report is, you know, how to make, uh, you know, a commercial farm profitable. So, you know, for those who are listening who want to start a commercial farm, you know, what would you recommend for them to make that farm profitable? Because you don't have a giant farm, but you guys have been running off profit for quite a while, correct? That's right. You know, we run a relatively small farm. Um, it, it's growing, um, but, you know, compared to a lot of a lot of the kinds of farms people decide to start up right off the bat, we started small and grew really organically um, into our market. Um, and there's 
you know, there are a lot of mistakes people make right off the bat. So it's, I would definitely recommend reading the guide and, and thinking about that a bit if you are considering commercial production. Right, right. And um, what about, you know, choosing, how, you know, what would you recommend for someone to start, how to, how to choose what they're going to grow to start off with to, to sell? Well, I would, um, it, that's really going, that's a market question that varies from place to place. So I would say definitely, you know, the easiest way to start is just to walk down to your grocery store and walk through the produce aisle and just kind of think about um, what's for sale there that is really pretty exorbitant in price, you know. Um, so when you're walking down, uh, you know, almost anywhere you go, especially here in like the northern U.S., um, there's there's you see herbs and you see kind of some of these uh, Mediterranean and tropical herbs and, and crops that just cost an arm and a leg. Um, so the trick is to kind of identify crops that are in high demand that do relatively high volume in your area, but are also priced with uh, potentially really large margins for you. So um, herbs especially are huge. Um, almost anywhere you go, herbs are going to be a good bet right off the bat because they travel very poorly. Um, it's very hard to cut herbs and transport it to market and have it be in really good shape um, just because they deteriorate quickly. So herbs are always a good bet. When it comes to greens, there's other specialty greens that travel poorly as well. You know, in our area, fancy lettuces, I mean, there's a lot of really beautiful, delicious leaf lettuces that you'll never see at the supermarket simply because they cannot be cut and packed and they don't travel well. Um, right. You know, for us, it's it's stuff like... Um, those fancy lettuces, we do lots of mustard greens. You know, mustard greens cost a ton here um, because they do travel so poorly. It's crops like that. So the, the grocery aisle is a great place to start. Another thing to yeah. do is to call local restaurants and start asking the cooks, you know, what do you use the most? Um, what is in short supply? And what do you wish you could get locally? And they'll help you identify right off the bat lots of really good crops to start looking at too. Um, right, yeah. But, but I would say, you know, the the first-time aquaponic commercial grower has the tendency to spread himself too thin. So you want to think really carefully about what you choose to start with and maybe just pick the top five for the first six months and then expand slowly um, into your market because you don't want to waste your time on losers. Um, you don't right. want to pick a crop that you, you can't end up selling. That's that's a It's better to just not grow it at all than to waste six months and a lot of money on it. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about like the you know miscellaneous stuff that isn't selling you know crops or or fish? Um, I know you guys you probably make some some money from selling your zip grow towers. Um, here, a, a lot of the commercial farms here in Hawaii, you know, will sell tours. You can pay twenty five bucks and go get a tour of the farm and and things like that. What do you recommend for miscellaneous things? Sure, um, you know, there's there's all sorts of options there. And, um, you know, it's the kind of thing for us, you know, our farm is totally separate from our towers. So kind of the manufacturing side of our business is totally separate from our farming business. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we we can't tolerate something that doesn't make money. So <laughs> if, <laughs> if if the farm wasn't profitable, we wouldn't be farmers. Um, right, yeah. You know, so that's, that's an important thing for people to, to realize because a lot of the time, um, folks will get into business and they'll start going and they'll just have a hard time making ends meet. So uh, they'll end up doing something else to subsidize their farm, which 
is, you know, I mean, if it's losing money, you just shouldn't be doing it. That's all there is to it. Um, right. You know, you shouldn't be teaching classes. You shouldn't be, uh, you know, doing tours or whatever. If it's losing money, you should just not be doing it. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of that's a, that's a hard one. And, you know, I'm a big fan. I mean, it is a business. You should be selling your crops. You should be selling whatever you can sell. Um, definitely. But but it's a good thing to keep in mind. You know, if, if you've got a aquaponic business and it's not meeting uh, your family's needs, then, you know, it's I've, I've let me back up. It's just, I've just seen a lot of people die a very slow and painful death, um, you know, as their business kind of just they're losing money pretty consistently and they're just struggling to make it happen. And that's right. an unfortunate reality. You know, like there's a lot of aquaponic farms in the States. It's it's a revolving door. People are going into business. People are going out of business. So yeah, yeah. So how about you guys? How many how many guys does it take to run your farm? Basically, our farm is run by uh, for about six days a week. Our farm is run by one man, and um, wow. on Thursdays that's kind of our big harvest days for our CSA. Uh, we have uh, we've got. At least one person, maybe two people, will show up to help him for for uh, two to three hours just with harvest. Um, but besides that, you know, it's pretty much a one-person job, and um, it works out pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. I was thinking it had to be a whole team, but really it's just a couple people. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of the nice things about hydro, um, and specifically the tower production like we do, is that, um, you know, it's pretty easy to move stuff around and pretty easy to plant and harvest and uh it just kind of makes it a little bit easier on the the personnel which you know right, right. for us that reduces our costs a lot man it's expensive to hire people so uh it's <laughs> yeah. it's nice that we can do it with a single person right makes sense well we come up on our time i really really appreciate you you know talking with me today and you know if people wanted to get in contact with you if they wanted to you know, maybe go and purchase a couple of your zip code towers. What's the best way to get in contact with you, and where can we find you on the interwebs? Yeah, the best place is our website. It's brightagrotech.com, um, or our store site is zipgrow.com. And uh, there's contact uh, forms there, and uh, info at brightagrotech, of course, usually lands in my inbox as well. So um, someone's trying to get a hold of us, email or through the website is definitely the best way to go. All right. Well, again, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing more of your videos on YouTube. They're always really informative about foreigners and helpful. Cool. Well, I'm glad you like them, and uh, keep your keep your eyes on that channel. We're going to keep continue to post lots of good material there. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review, or go to www.aquaponicsforeveryone.com, or like us at facebook.com/aquaponicsforeveryone.